I'll be coming for her. And I'll be coming for you, too. Sure you will. And I'll be waiting. You are about to enter a world unlike any you've ever seen before. Where rock and roll is king. The only law is a loaded gun. Where the beautiful... Stay and see the show, it's really good. The brutal. I want Tom Cody. And the brave all meet. From now on, it's for real. In Streets of Fire. You're lying in your bed and on a Saturday night. You're sweating buckets and it's not even hard. Got- so we're talking about Streets of Fire. It is a movie. <laughs> it is, it, it is, is a movie. A movie. <laughs> uh, 1984. And it is a rock and roll fable. The reason I wanted to talk about this film or to watch this film, Andrew, is I think I saw a TikTok that like recommended, you know, a film, kind of a lost film that you need to see. And and the, the way he described it, I was like, OK, I need to see this. And I watched the trailer. I'm like, yeah, I really need to see this. And I thought, has Andrew seen this? And you hadn't. So I'm like, we got to watch this. Yeah, I I don't know if I'd agree with it. It's a movie that people <laughs> missed, per se. <laughs> it's got a pretty simple plot in that uh, a mercenary is hired to rescue his ex-girlfriend, a singer who has been kidnapped by a motorcycle gang. Happens in a world, in a time, in a city, not really a real city, but a city kind of in the 1950s, I'd say. And um, see, that's part of the interesting thing about this movie is it we don't really know when it's supposed to be because there's right. like certain 80s stuff in it, but definitely 50s stuff. Yeah, I think we're meant to believe that it's like in a time, maybe the 1950s with the leather and the motor- motorcycle gangs and the style of the cars. Do, they do say at the beginning, it's another place, another time. Yeah, certainly is. I thought it was maybe like it. It was clearly a set, but I don't know how much we want to get into on the outside here. But but I was like, is this Chicago because of the driving under the train? Um, but in a lot of scenes, it looked just like a Hollywood set. Yeah, for my research, it was mostly a whole set they built okay. for this whole movie, which seems outrageous. So this is up my alley as far as like the music and neo-noir um, rock musicals yeah, yeah so and the, the poster art looked really good and uh so i was really i had high hopes for it but you know because i hadn't heard of it ever <laughs> that should have been my first clue that it was not going to be that great but certainly i think if i'd seen it in the 80s i might have had a little bit of a nostalgia factor running with it but i hadn't so it didn't yeah, affect if- me the same way others might have if I was a kid, maybe I would really absolutely love this movie. All right. It definitely feels like a teenager's right, right. dream script that they came up with. A little too late on this one, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. So I think what we need to talk about first is kind of the backstory for this movie. Let's so it's it. directed by Walter Hill, who made The Warriors, which for this movie, I would have described it as like, the Warriors meets American Graffiti meets a little bit of Wizard of Oz. <laughs> what? Just because of all the people, they like get to join their merry old band of characters. Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. Yeah. But Walter Hill had 
just made 48 hours, mm. which uh, is a you movie can... I enjoy. Yeah. And then the one movie I want to see of his that came out before this too was The Driver, which is the movie Drive took a lot from it as like a silent getaway driver guy. And then we have The Warriors, which came out before 48 hours. I don't think I've seen The Warriors. I feel like I'm missing out on a major reference here. I would say The Warriors is better than this movie. Yeah. For sure. Okay. I'm not trying to be mean about this movie. <laughs> I did kind of like it. So it was written by Walter Hill and Larry Gross. And basically the idea Walter had behind it is he wanted to make a comic book movie without having a comic book to ad- adapt from mm. because he didn't like any of the comics he read, <laughs> which what? I think is funny. And it was basically like, what would be a movie I would have wanted to see growing up? Mm. And so that's how this weird neo-noir rock musical came to be. And then the title of the movie comes from a Bruce Springsteen song, Streets of Fire, which at one point they did have permission to use as the big finale song in this movie. Yeah. But then once they found out it wasn't going to be, when Bruce found out it was going to be other people singing it, he withdrew his permission. Oh. And then, so they had filmed, already filmed the ending with that song. And they tore down the set. And then Jim Steinman, who wrote the other, who wrote two songs for this movie, he wrote uh, Nowhere Fast and the big finale, Tonight is What It Means to Be Young. And he wrote Tonight is What It Means to Be Young when they already took down the set. So they had to spend another million dollars to rebuild (laughs) the concert set so that they could re-record the ending of this Mm -hmm. movie. Was that the song? Because like there was the I Can Dream About You song. Yep. That's the actual hit from the movie. But so that's the song they played after that. Like when the yep, credits the were running. The one where that uh, Diane Lane is singing at the end. Okay. Okay. Which I will give it to this movie. Streets of Fire is a sweet name for a movie. <laughs> I think that's like 90% of what drew me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just dive into Streets of Fire. Very cool opening with another place, another time, and a rock and roll fable. I was like, yes. <laughs> and we get my first surprise person I didn't know was in this movie with Rick Moranis. Oh my gosh. Who was playing like the manager of the band. He was kind of a kind of a forceful. I mean, he's diminutive in size, but like his character is kind of a you know bossy, forceful money man this is after sctv is out okay but they don't seem to have cast him to be a funny man (laughs) (laughs) he's just supposed to be the like annoying guy yeah he was effective (laughs) he was very annoying but apparently there's this huge show going on a benefit show for who it's benefiting i don't really remember Mm. Of Eileen and the what's the band name? Eileen Aim and the Attackers. And they are playing the big number Nowhere Fast, which during this song I was like, this sounds like a meatloaf song. <laughs> so lo and behold, my surprise, it was Jim Steinman's who wrote the song, who wrote a lot of Meatloaf's biggest hits. Oh wow. 
I thought it was good. I was like, oh, this song is pretty good. I was I was surprised. I thought the song was really good. And I thought for Walter Hill saying that he regretted how he shot most of the music stuff because he didn't really know how to shoot mm -hmm. types action. Mm -hmm. I thought it was pretty well done scene. Mm -hmm. And so Diane Lane is playing Ellen Aim. And, and doesn't a young Diane Lane singing look like Mandy Moore in this movie? Yeah, she oh does look like Mandy Moore. That was funny. But did you know this is not even Diane Lane's first movie as a singer in a band? No. What was the other one? So in 1982, a couple of years before this, she was in Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, where yeah. she plays a punk rocker wow. in like this three-piece girl band with Laura Dern as the bassist, I think. Oh, no way. <laughs> Have you seen that? Yeah, and it's a good movie. Oh, cool. Well, I thought she did really well. I mean, I knew she wasn't singing, but I thought she did really well in um, lip syncing, being on stage. Yeah, even though there would seem to be female background singers in the song, but there was none on stage. <laughs> there was a few times where I was like, who's singing right now? Because <laughs> nobody was by a mic. <laughs> and of course, once you know it, during this performance, this gang called the Bombers shows up with the plan to just kidnap the lead singer <laughs> of a band during a show. <laughs> during the first song, too. Do you think that was their plan or were they just acting on impulse? I think it was in mayhem, plan. you know, they're into mayhem. You think I was, you think it was a plan? Yep. Okay. Cause he gave the signal and they yeah. all knew what it meant. Yeah. They're organized. Cause we meet our next famous actor. The character's name is Raven, but played nice. by Willem Dafoe. Nice. <laughs> in kind of his first major movie. This made me ask myself, has Willem Dafoe ever had a normal role? <laughs> like where he's just a normal guy. In the Florida Project, he plays like a landlord, which is kind of a normal guy. The movie he was in before this that was his biggest role was in the Catherine Bigelow's first movie, The Loveless. Where he plays like basically a deconstruction of the 50s gang member type character. Mm -hmm. So it's fascinating that he is playing the typecasted as another 50s gangster type. But Catherine Bigelow actually recommended him to Walter Hill for this movie, which I think was nice. Mm. Basically kickstarted his whole career. Sure. So after this, he's in To Live and Die in L.A. playing the main villain of that, too. Which is the better 80s cocaine-fueled movie. Sure. <laughs> and so after the kidnapping, we get introduced to Riva, who owns a diner in this not-named town, and sends a letter to Tom saying, hey, he needs to come home. And then we meet Tom Cody. What are your thoughts on the name Tom Cody? I thought it was apropos. <laughs> And because it was such a generic name for it such was, a generic but it's character. Also, it's also a strong, catchy name. Like Ezekiel Longbottom d doesn't, <laughs> you know, like that's not a hero's name. Perhaps so a I thought fish. it was, I thought it was an appropriate name for, for his character. Tom is generic though. The Cody part's cool, but like Tom, yeah. Tom Cody. 
But I every time I said his name, I would say it like that to make it sound a little more exciting. Well, I got confused for a while because I heard the name Tom. I didn't remember hearing his last name was Cody. So when people started calling him Cody, I was very confused. <laughs> I was like, is he using a fake name to other people? <laughs> but he's played by Michael Pare, who, boy, reading up on this movie... A lot of people had a lot of problems with Michael <laughs> in this movie <laughs> because some of the other people that got uh, auditioned for the role of Tom Cody includes Patrick Swayze and Tom Cruise, who is who they actually wanted for this movie and offered the role, wow. but he accepted a different movie. Now, Tammy, do you think this movie could have been saved with Tom Cruise as Tom Cody? Maybe. I mean, I don't know. Oh, boy. There's a certain amount of camp in this movie. Like the, uh, even with the other characters, too. So I had a hard time telling if this movie was trying to take itself seriously or not. So I don't know what Tom Cruise would have brought to that. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. A lot of people were complaining that worked on this movie were saying, like, man, if we would have had Tom Cruise, Mm -hmm. it would have been a hit. And I don't think Tom Cruise could have saved this movie. Mm. Yeah, I'm doubtful. I mean, um, Michael Paré has a really good look to him, like those intense blue eyes and the dark, dark hair. Um, Looks good with his trench coat. Yeah, strong chin. But he's not a great actor, by all means, no. So, but yeah, it's, it's really... debatable. It's a, it's a good question. I don't think I have an answer for that. I don't think the movie's like asking for a terrific performance from the lead character Mm -hmm. either. (laughs) Right. His sister, the woman who plays his sister, before we move on from that, Deborah Van Valkenburg. Oh, that's a name. Um, she looks so familiar. And I just don't know if she looks like an actress who's like now, but her like her age now. Mm -hmm. Um, but I can't place her from like any of the work that she's done, but she just looked really familiar to me. I only knew her from the Warriors. Hmm. Oh, she was in the Warriors as well? Yep. <laughs> and then did you see that Rick Moranis and Michael Parade did not get along? I didn't see that, but I mean, that's not surprising. Mick, Rick Moranis just kept like outwitting him and making fun of him. <laughs> I did catch a quote that said that Michael Parade said that Walter Hill like being really critical and said something like do it right or we're gonna get rick springfield in here to replace you or like (laughs) just like some empty threat like that it was pretty funny yeah i also read that uh walter hill is not a very he's not an actor's director he won't tell actors how to like do their scenes because he feels that's not his job as a director (laughs) well that's why the movie is not great i mean right right there that's a big part of it Especially with this young of a cast. Mm-hmm. I think all of them are like under, probably under 25 at least. Oh my gosh, to be a fly on the wall <laughs> in this movie. To like have a director tell you that and then for you to try to figure out for yourself how this character needs to be. How should Tom Cody do this scene? <laughs> he should say as little as possible. He should say a lot less than what... <laughs> Michael Parry did. And he's not saying much. And he didn't say much, but like (laughs) but this character needs to not say even less than 
not much. <laughs> so Tom shows up at the diner and another gang, which I think they were called the Roadrunners, are uh, causing some mischief in the diner. And Tom decides to uh, beat them all up and throws them through the window, which if I was his sister, I would be a lot more mad that because they were just like throwing ketchup and stuff around. But Tom broke a whole window, which seems like much worse. But I guess sister can forgive. I bet she was regretting having telegraphed him to come back to town. And then we get another surprise actor appearance because Tom decides he wants to go for a drink. Couple of couple of surprises. And guess who's bartending but Bill Paxton himself. Playing Clyde. <laughs> I actually laughed out loud pretty hard. I'm like, what? <laughs> well, I think I remember Bill. seeing Bill Paxton's name in the credits, so I was very excited about that. But uh Bill Paxton's not given much to do. He's basically playing a I don't know, a goofball bartender yeah. yeah doesn't seem a far stretch from some of his other characters i'm guessing like weird science and whatnot probably wasn't too far off from this movie or near dark okay so yeah weird science would have been next year after this one. Oh, get out and his hair aliens, is still short aliens was two years from now yeah so he was just about to become bill paxton yeah right <laughs> right hey you gotta start somewhere also then, in the bar. Yeah. We get introduced to McCoy, played by Amy Madigan. So her character, her being in this film, was actually the most intriguing part of it to me. Because she's played so many other beefier, substantial roles. But it made me think, like, did she get her start in Hollywood by playing the tomboy all the time? Because, like, she is fully cast as that in this movie. And it was because of her height and her kind of raggedy Ann looks a little bit. I'm not saying she's not attractive, but just, like, she's got that straw doll quality. I don't know how (laughs) else to say it. Um, And then that that accent and the tough way she talks. I was was just wondering, like, um, if that's how she got her start and if she got pigeonholed into a lot of roles like that until she got some better ones. Well, looking at her previous movies, I don't recognize any of them, so I can't say if that's what. But did you know originally this role was supposed to be a man, and they changed it because Amy Madigan wrote or read for the sister role, oh. and they liked her so much oh. that they cast her. They changed the whole cast to make uh-huh. her into McCoy. Yeah, I liked her in it. And I kind of like it's not like a love triangle character. She's mm-hmm. just her own right. character. Which is surprising to see a script like this showing that kind of restraint. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like nothing else was held in (laughs) restraint. (laughs) But uh, Tom Cody and McCoy hit it off right away. Yeah. And so McCoy asks for a helping hand for a place to stay for the night. So Tom Cody invites her to stay at her sister, his sister's place. And get this, they were both in the army. Like the characters, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> not not the actors. 
And then the next day is the big plan to go save Ellen. Why Ellen Aim? Why is what is there any significance to that name? Ellen Aim. Well, I, I don't get understand. Aim and the attackers. Oh. But I don't get yeah. EA. I don't know. So their terrific plan is they're going to get Billy Fish to come along with them because he grew up in the neighborhood that the bombers are from. So he's going to be the guide. And McCoy's going to come with because, I don't know, it's always nice to have a third driver, I guess, available. <laughs> She's the wheels man. Yeah, and she said she can fix anything that has wheels. So, And uh, Tom Cody gets a bunch of guns, <laughs> and off they go. Also, another thing I noticed in this movie, as we get to the bomber's headquarters, a lot of overalls and suspenders in this movie. Yes. So I don't know, in Walter Hill's neo-possible futuristic world, we're all going to be needing our pants held up somehow. (laughs) It probably helps when you're fighting to not have your pants fall down. It gives the men a really strange look. There's something about the suspenders that makes them look a little childish. It gives him a weird look in this film. Like, not, it doesn't gel with like what he's trying to do, I thought. Mm -hmm. And then on their way to the bomber's headquarters, we get another surprise character actor appearance. It's Ed Bagley Jr., everyone. I think this is my favorite part of the film. (laughs) Who's playing some guy just roaming around the area. (laughs) He gives some information on like the where the club is and, and Raven and whatnot. And Michael Parry goes, now pay him to the Rick Moranis character. And Ed, Ed Bagley's like, yeah, pay me. And he's just like, <laughs> just kind of goofy, but, and his face is all dirty too. So I had a, I'm like, I know this actor, but can't really see his face. And then I figured that out. Yeah. Well, I was surprised because Ed Bagley Jr. I don't remember his name being in the opening credits. I don't want to definitely recognize that name. if It would have popped up, but I'm surprised that they gave his character a name. But maybe they call, uh, maybe someone called his name like when they ran into him because he was in, you know, movie for all 30 seconds, right? Mm-hmm. Ben Gunn. And doesn't even join their little merry band of <laughs> misfits. <laughs> One of the only characters who they come across that doesn't join them. So is this a cameo or like was he? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if this is a favor to Walter Hill or somebody. Right, right. So I don't know how much of. Ed Bigley Jr. cameo is drawing the box office numbers. <laughs> Has Ed Bigley Jr. ever starred in his own film? See, and I was like, wondering that too. He was in Transylvania 65,000. Don't ask me how I know this, but he, he co-starred <laughs> with Jeff Goldblum. And Jeff Goldblum definitely was more of the main character in that one. Well, his dad was never really the main character of any movies, I don't think, either. Hmm. Just born to be a character actor, I guess. He is a character. Torchies. They go to Torchies. Yeah, we get a couple of music montages <gasps> of yes. the local band there called the Blasters. Mm-hmm. But it was really Ry Cooter, right? Was it him playing or was it just his songs? Music by Ry Cooter. So the whole, the whole movie. Well, Ry Cooter had like I think all the... Arrange the music for the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised that that kind of club had, like, such awesome music. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> like their appreciation of, of music in this weird land. <laughs> That's not really a weird land, but I mean, then this weird time is in this another place, another this time. other place, this other time is, is interesting. <laughs> and it goes to show that you know you can support live music in your local <laughs> gang located gang bar. bars. <laughs> music is universal. <laughs> And uh, so their great plan is uh, McCoy's going to go through the front door and and then they don't really have a plan after that. <laughs> Seems very uh, McCoy just going off vibes for what to do. <laughs> and uh, Tom Cody's going to create some distractions outside. So McCoy lured one of the gang members to the top floor and knocks him out and then she goes searching in the other rooms where all the heads of the gang are hanging out playing poker and then she finds ellen and then cody's distractions of shooting a gun at motorcycles causing every one of them to explode on impact did i miss something or was he did he say he had some special gun or special bullets to make them explode like yeah, i don't remember every one mentioning. of them explode <laughs> <laughs> it's like walter hill said and i want explosions everywhere but it seemed to not matter where the motorcycle was getting shot at. They were going to explode no matter what. <laughs> Which is one of the things they wanted to keep this movie PG by no killing. Yeah. But yeah. there's no way those men survived their exploding motorcycles. So he does manage to get Ellen out. And McCoy even makes it out. But it seemed too easy, right? Yeah, and then we get a standoff with uh, Raven and Tom Cody. Oh, yeah. Which I thought looked really cool because Willem Dafoe with like fire all around him. Oh, yeah, yeah, makes yeah. Makes him look even more menacing. Mm -hmm. And then it looks like he walks into the fire as he walks away from Tom Cody. So I thought that was cool. Mm -hmm. But basically, he's uh, saying, Oh, you're in trouble now, Tom Cody. <laughs> <laughs> And then this is when the uh, adventure shenanigans begin. Mm. Also, so when Ellen and Tom Cody are reunited, Billy Fish acts like this is a shocker that they used to date. Yeah. Even though he like said at one point, he didn't do it for love, babe, or whatever. So like he, they hinted at that he knew, but I guess changed their minds. Because <laughs> Billy Fish was surprised to find out that Tom and... Ellen dated, mm -hmm. but Tom insists that he did not do this for love. He did it for the money. Did it for the money. $10,000 he's getting <laughs> paid. And then when they're on the streets, we get this cool music video montage of one of Ellen's songs, Sorcerer, uh, written by Stevie Nicks. Mm -hmm. And they're doing this like cool, like blinking type montage where they blink between the action of the movie to the action of the music video for the song. Who's blinking? I forget. Just like the camera blinking. Like oh. it goes to black. Oh, yeah, yeah. To the scene of the street, to black. Music video, to black. Yeah. I thought that was neat. Yeah, a lot of the montage was um, not, they weren't smooth transitions into the next ones. Um, maybe at one of the songs. It was kind of hard. I don't know. It, it, that's what like things like that. And I don't know what kind of transitional scene features they had in the 80s, but like that made it feel amateurish. Some of that editing. 
See, I liked I it. I made me like the movie more because it was like oh. trying to do something oh. like wild, which I think this movie could have used more MTV influence. Oh, sure. Of like trying weird music video tricks, mm -hmm. which makes me wonder if a music video director would have directed this. Yeah. How the movie would have went. That's fine. I mean, but like, I think you can do that with a more finished end effect mm -hmm. effects than, than what they had. And then we get introduced to another surprise character. It's E.G. Daly, who's Dottie from Pee Wee Herman movie. <laughs> Dottie, she has been in a lot of movies. And a lot of voiceover work. Yeah. Um, Tommy Pickles. She was in Valley Girl, I think, as well. Sometime in the 80s. Yep, Valley Girl. Reading up on this movie... Uh, E.G. Daly was upset that she didn't get to sing a song because oh. she thought it was cool that um, Diane Lane got to mm -hmm. sing a couple songs, but there wasn't room in the script for her, which makes me wonder, maybe there was a bigger role for this character because the character doesn't really contribute to the storyline. Right. So it makes me think it was maybe something that got cut. Well, she did tell them that the police were looking for them when they were in that crowded street and come this and she, way. And then and she, she just attached fan. herself to the, yeah, she's a fan who attached herself to the group for the rest of the movie. And then because of the warning, they uh, decide to uh, steal another vehicle and they <laughs> pick a old beaten down bus, <laughs> which features a doo-wop group, <laughs> uh, the Sorrells. Which is so rude to just steal a working duop group's touring bus. Yeah, they were like on the road trying to get to a gig, right? Yeah. And these this group just decides to take it. But I was excited to see in the duop group that Robert Townsend hmm. is one of the singers in the group. And he went on to make the movie Hollywood Shuffle, which is a really great movie. It's a satire about like stereotypical roles for African American actors, what parts they get in film and television. So if you haven't seen Hollywood Shuffle, definitely check it out. I haven't. I'm gonna. Thanks. And then I do like the little song that they sing as like an audition to be openers for yeah. Ellen and the Aim, Ellen Aim and the Attackers. So their little group just kind of keeps growing. Like you said, with the uh, the Oz factor. <laughs> and then, of course, once you know it, there's a police blockade <laughs> keeping them from getting home. And then I was excited because one of the cops is played by character actor Peter Jason, who's in a bunch of John Carpenter movies. And I was so happy for myself that I recognized him. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> but I thought this was a pretty funny sequence of the cops coming onto the bus to like search them. Mm -hmm. And then Billy Fish bribes them. And then they're like, hey, wait a minute. You're a little too quick on the bribe. I think <laughs> we're going to bring you all in. <laughs> that was your one mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, they have to blast their way out through this blockade. <laughs> and then they ditch the bus to hop on the train. Then they make it home and the entire town comes rushing out to go 
greet the conquering heroes, I guess. But Willem Dafoe shows up and the bombers want to make a deal. Oh, wait, no, never mind. Willem Dafoe doesn't show up. The bomber guy does? Yeah, Lee. The one thug? The guy who plays Mr. Body in Clue. He shows up. He he looks like a guy who has played a thug in a lot of movies. Yeah, he looks like he was meant to always be in the 50s. (laughs) (laughs) Poor guy. Now, who is that? His name is Lee Ving. Oh, there it is. Lee Ving. Character named Greer. But we see him talking with the cops, and basically the whole thing is the bombers want to make a deal. They don't want to burn down the entire community. They just want Tom Cody. Right. I don't think the cops should be making deals like that. Yeah, I struggled through this movie, like, trying to understand the role of the cops (laughs) overall in this town. (laughs) Well, I also liked in this next scene when the cop comes to talk to Tom Cody, and they're Mm -hmm. in an empty diner, but the cop is like, you need to come outside and talk with me in the rain. And <laughs> <laughs> Like the there's diner. no one in the diner. <laughs> and the window's cut out even too. So it's not like it's very private. <laughs> and then Tom is, the cop wants Tom Cody out of there by nightfall. Yeah. Which if I was like, don't you think the bombers would just be more mad that the guy they're looking for left? Right. And then they would just burn down the town anyway. But we get another reuniting scene with Ellen, and we get a nice kiss in the rain scene. Yeah, that was a nice shot. And Ellen wants to leave with Tom. But instead, Tom knocks her out and (laughs) gives her to McCoy. Oh, my God. That was hard to see. Tom decides he's going to go confront the whole gang himself. Yeah, that's something Tom would do. And then we get another surprise appearance from Lynn Thigpen, who is the chief character from Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, the TV show. Did you ever watch that show? I did not. (laughs) Oh, she plays like, I don't know if she's like the host technically of the show, but she gives like clues to the contestants on Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. So who is she? She calls them gumshoes. Gumshoes. She plays like the... Is he like the bus driver or a train driver? I can't remember. Oh. So Raven shows up, and at first it's just like a few other gang members <laughs> with Raven. And then he does the old switcheroo ah! where he blows the air horn, and the whole <laughs> gang shows up on motorcycles. Which is funny. It's like, how could you have not heard them? Because they were only like a block away. (laughs) Like the thunder of 50 motorcycles. Yeah. How early did they get there to pull this up? And then Cody comes showing up in the old car that he stole at the beginning of the movie. How he got it back, I don't know. And then it's going to be an old-fashioned train hammer fight. (laughs) I like how the sheriff or the cop who told Cody to beat it out of town is like, you know, kick their butt. (laughs) He knew Cody was never going to leave. Yeah. <laughs> and it is a showdown. I mean, essentially, this is this movie is a Western, too. Well, aside from the neo-noir rock musical, <laughs> it's kind of a Western. Yeah, so we get a one-on-one between Raven and Cody. And they fight first with, right, they're train hammers, aren't they? Like, I've been working on the railroad type Yeah, hammers. they're big pickaxe. Not a pickaxe. No. Yeah, they're not a pickaxe. But, but they've, they're, yeah. But they're hammer-like pickaxes. Yeah. Pick hammers, maybe. Pick hammers. 
sledgehammers would you say they didn't like really, really look like sledgehammers. sledgehammers yeah yeah but eventually they just get rid of them and then they get into hand to hand combat which willem dafoe does pretty well at the beginning of that mm-hmm. but then of course because it's tom cody of course he gets absolutely destroyed <laughs> <laughs> i thought right before willem dafoe's character collapses over mm-hmm. he had a very like snake-like quality oh. look to him, which i thought was cool oh yeah now i'm confused why the gang didn't like all out just start brawling with the rest of the city with the, the rest of the city all had shotguns oh that's right because <laughs> they all they the did i forgot that already <laughs> <laughs> Clyde did too. Bill Paxton. Yeah, he was the, like the leader of. He was the one who got like everybody in town to come out. He's a hero. Shotguns. He's, He's the, the real, real hero, hero of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get to my personal highlight of the movie, where we go back to the performance hall. Yeah. And we get to see the duop group perform. I can dream about you. I forgot how much I loved that song when I was a kid growing up. It's such the music a good video song. for it is very funny. Yeah. Because it's Dan Hartman who actually sings it. Yeah. And it's him working at a bar, but the movie Streets of Fire is playing in the background. <gasps> I gotta and watch that. The doo-wop group is performing the song on the TV, and then oh. he's singing it in this bar. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I gotta watch that when we're done. And then we get the big finale number of mm-hmm. Tonight is What It Means to Be Young. Mm. Which I thought sounded a lot of like I Need a Hero. Do you know that mm-hmm. song? Yeah. I kept I actually thought I was like, did they have the rights to that song for this movie? I know. I had to look. I had to look and see. Okay, who where where did all these songs come from? But nope, this is the Steinman song that he wrote after the movie was already finished. <laughs> and they had to re-record. I did like the little exchange between Billy Fish and the stagehand guy played Waldo. Where he says, Waldo, I'm going to be rich. And then Waldo just says, deadpan, yeah, long live rock and roll. But Tom decides that he isn't right for Ellen and that she should stick with Billy Fish because he's going to help her career where Tom can't. And Tom Cody's going to hit the road. But lo and behold, old McCoy also hitting the road, picks him up, and they go driving off, much like Casablanca. Think it's going to be the start of a beautiful friendship, right? <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Well, I can see why there would be like a sequel from that. Yeah, there was apparently supposed to be. This was supposed mm-hmm. to be a trilogy, right? But uh, this movie did not do well at the box office. It made two point four million dollars its first weekend, and then after the film went on to make a total of eight million dollars. Mm. The budget for this was fourteen point five million. Ouch. <laughs> so they did not make their money back. So I guess having seen this, I'm I'm a little uh, underwhelmed. There are some cool things about it, but I, I think that the most interesting thing was like seeing all these actors who are bigger stars now pop up in the movie. Um, and then also Michael Perry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I don't know, I guess I enjoyed the, the noir parts of it, but um. The funniest thing that I did read on Wikipedia, and and I love Diane Lane, so I'm not making fun of her because actually I like her as an actress. But like she turned down, <laughs> did you see? She turned down 
um, risky business. Oh, no, I didn't see that. And she got a raspberry for this movie. And then, then, um, which seems unfair. She is not the worst part of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And so she, she, I guess, had trouble getting roles for a couple of years after this, which is just insane. Like, that's how, if that's how Hollywood really works, that's insane. But it made me laugh. Like, this thing just like, you know, totally stalled her otherwise, you know, high trajectory career. Mm -hmm. What do you think could have? fixed this movie oh god i guess it it because it feels like this movie they wanted it to be like a midnight movie kind of thing but the Mm -hmm. songs i think were just not there yeah like it doesn't have like banger tunes like rocky horror picture show if it had had like songs like that throughout Mm -hmm. the movie i think it would have been a bigger hit that's funny because i think this i don't think any better songs i don't think the songs have anything to do with <laughs> with the, the quality of this movie i think like they didn't know he didn't really know what kind of movie he wanted it to be and you're getting mixed signals everyone's getting mixed signals and so you've got half of the actors pulling out full camp and the others playing it kind of straight i think it needed to be played full on straight like these are dark streets and i think people probably needed to get injured a lot more <laughs> You know, just for that seriousness of it. <laughs> um, I think they should have played it straight and had, I guess, if you did that, the music would need to be a little more serious because it was a little popish. Yeah, when your biggest hit is I Can Dream About You, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're dealing with a very poppy movie. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I see what you're saying. Like the music maybe didn't match whatever tone it was they were trying to go for. But also the tone wasn't really there either. The tone wasn't going for what the tone was. There wasn't, yeah, they, I don't know. I would love to talk to someone who watched this when they were younger and just loved it. I guess I can probably guess what they liked about it. There probably wasn't a lot like this out there. Mm -hmm. And if you're really into music, this might pique your interest too. Yeah, the only, the closest thing I could think of that kind of reminded me of a better version of this is scott pilgrim versus the world which is like a rock musical yeah but i think the movie did a better job of better songs but also everyone's in on the joke of the movie too which i just wish this movie i feel like it didn't go far enough should have just went all out in like absurd action right absurd characters (laughs) and absurd storyline and it didn't and that that's what made it yeah a very okay movie (laughs) just an okay movie (laughs) i'm glad i watched it because now i know but also just i was expecting i had higher expectations and so they didn't get met (laughs) i would watch it again at some point i would why i don't know there's something about it yeah or at least i'd watch the music scenes again Mm. Yeah, I mean, there was some interesting stuff in there. I, it was inconsistent for sure, and I think that didn't help it either. <laughs> and that's our thoughts on Streets of Fire. Streets of Fire. <laughs> that's my Bruce Springsteen. Nice. Nice. Your body's got a feeling that.